this is Derek Harp, the founder and chairman of CSA and your host on the CSA podcast. And this is another one of our episodes in the series of interviewing uh, cybersecurity leadership, leaders all around the globe who are in a wide variety of positions. And I'm really excited about my guest today. I have Harry Wingo. He is currently a faculty member at the College of Information and Cyberspace at the National Defense University. But Harry, at his heart, he is a defender. He is a former Navy SEAL. We'll talk about that. He is an attorney. He has had a variety of jobs. He's been an entrepreneur. He's worked, headed up a major chamber of commerce. He's a husband. He's a family man, a father. He's a martial artist, definitely a teacher at heart as well. Multilingual, fluent in Spanish. This guy has done a lot of interesting things and has a lot of value that he he gives to the community uh, and to people that get to know him. And so we're really blessed to have him on the show. Welcome to the show. Hey, Derek. It's great to be here. As I always like to start out uh, with the the backstory, super cybersecurity people are superheroes of a sort, and every superhero has a backstory. So let's find out where Harry started out. I'm assuming you were not dropped in a vat of some sort of bubbling acid to turn into who you are. But I'm from the D.C. area uh, originally. So my my uh, mom and dad uh, took me home from the hospital and my twin sister, and we were in D.C. till we were five years old, and then my folks moved out near Annapolis, Maryland. And I grew up out there, went to high school, and that's where I joined the Navy from Maryland and went away for a while. Now I'm back in the D.C. area. Now I live in D.C. with my wife, who's a judge in town, and I have three daughters. Awesome. Yeah, I think I know from your story that watching D.C. and uh, military and legal professions, those are themes that have been running in your life uh, uh, pretty much your whole life. Yes, that's right. My, my father, he actually started out Signal Corps, and his father was a World War I veteran before coming home and uh, being a farmer in Virginia, rural Virginia. Uh, but my father, he missed a boat to Korea because they found out he could type. So it's it's funny how things change people's lives. And my father went the path of being a paralegal. Uh, he was enlisted and he worked his way up to being a warrant officer, but he worked for lawyers and he would talk about these lawyers he uh, worked for and with. That's where I got the idea, Derek, to uh, go to law school after I got out of the SEAL teams. Well, thank you for your your service. And thank you for yours. So, yeah, we traded. There we go. So let's talk about uh, I always like to understand, you know, people's first um, job. And I, I don't mean necessarily, uh, you know, post graduating the Naval Academy uh, before that. Well, you know, what did, did you do anything, you know, anything spark your interest early on to make money or or donate your time to something? What kind of things did you engage yourself with early on? Yeah, well, actually, I was uh, pretty much um, my, my parents put my sister and I to work in their garden. <laughs> and uh, they were out, Exactly. My my mother. Her father uh, was from North Carolina originally, and he, he, instead of going to California, he saved up some money. He was one of the first black police officers in the little part of Prince George's County. He was a mason, a bricklayer, and uh, with the money he saved up, instead of going to California, he ended up buying 75 acres out near Annapolis. And so where this is going, the reason I ended up, my first job was being in what was not really a garden, Derek. <laughs> my mom and dad were both backgrounds in agriculture as far as their families. That's when they grew up on farms. And so... Their, uh, their plot, my, my dad came out, my grandfather gave him two acres of land. He said, if you bring my baby girl out here, I'll give you two acres. And so this huge plot of land, we were forced to you know, work on weeding and hoeing. There were long lines. I'm talking maybe 100 yards and, and 30 yards wide. That's not a garden. <laughs> so we worked in there. Yeah, you, there's garden and then there's farm and then there's what is your small farm? I mean, I, I, between. yeah, I was also uh, so that was that was great. But I also was a dishwasher, real job getting paid. Uh, and that that kind of really underscored that I wanted to uh, you know go to college. Not that you know people make do with what they can, but I, I just remember, wow, this is yeah, it's pretty pretty tough work. And uh, you know, I 
I would watch this as if I had to, you know, just to get by, but that's, it was good to be exposed. So I saw that. And but I was very fortunate to be able to go to the Naval Academy. I was very interested in engineering. And I did have another job, actually. There was an internship with the David Taylor Naval Research and Development Center. I, I couldn't forget that. That was while I was still in high school. I was fortunate enough. There's a couple kids in Anne County because we're so close to that facility right across from, from Annapolis. I was assigned to an engineering team. And uh, there was a welding unit at that research and development center, um, TIG welding. And I remember uh, how exciting it was to work there. And uh, there was a salary. And the good deal on that is when I graduated the program at the end of the summer, they said, hey, if you want to, we'll pay for your college anywhere you want to go, as long as you become a naval engineer, civilian for the Navy. But I also applied to the, the academies and I, I chose to take uh, the Annapolis route instead. So those were those are my jobs before being commissioned. You beat me to my question how the Naval Academy came into view, and you kind of answered that already. Any exposure to technology in the early years? That's a great question because, yes, there was. I was um, basically a, a nerd, geek, whatever you want to say. I, I was interested in some of the very earliest types of computers that were there. And again, a blessing. My mom's a school teacher. I've always liked, you know, tinkering with things. I'd watch my dad work on the car. I wasn't as into it as he would have liked maybe, but uh, so I wasn't having to be a mechanic, but I would help him and I'd learn some things. And it's funny how all that, my dad was, he'll fix anything. He'll work on his, his own refrigerator, things like that. What happened is within Anne Arundel County, I was pulled into what they call the gifted and talented program. So they had a couple kids around the county and I was uh, exposed to computers at the Naval Academy, saw where they were on base, you know, saw a mainframe for the first time. Uh, and what this really was, was a feeder program for NSA, I learned uh, years later. <laughs> so there was a very active effort. So Anne Arundel Community College, we went up there and, and as well, and modular arithmetic and, you know, how many alpha letters of the alphabet show. And we were doing that sort of stuff. That was a feeder program. So I benefited from a couple of those sessions before I actually fell on to that uh, internship with David Taylor, Naval Research Development Center. But the, on my own, computers. Did you ever have one of those? Uh, this I go way back. So the tape recorder. I remember taking cassette tapes, putting those yeah. in there. I had an Atari. I rushed out to get that. And there were some of my high school friends. A bunch of us were really into those things. And video games, the first ones, which were, you know, first they were on a teletype and something printed out. And then you had the really basic graphics. But I was just taken with that. I thought it was the, the coolest thing ever. So that those, no, I, it's funny, I hadn't thought of these things in years. <laughs> Thanks, Derek. Yeah, my but first one was the Commodore 64. The tape drive had been, I'd exposed to that at school. My first computer, I had a five, uh, what was it, a five and a quarter uh, floppy, the big oh, yeah. floppy. That's, that's right. And if you took a hole punch, I mean, this was the greatest hack. You took a hole punch, there was a little notch. If you match the notch on the other side, they were suddenly dual sided. I remember oh. that. I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> Woohoo! Wow. Okay. Well, this is so this is great. So you you've got uh, those exposures early on, and you decide to go to the Naval Academy. What what? Curious what you studied there. I don't know when we ever talked about that. Yeah. So I went there, rip roaring, ready to uh, be an astronaut. All I wanted to do was be a Marine Corps wow. aviator and and be a grunt if I couldn't do that. Aerospace was was what I was thinking in my sights, and then I crashed into plebe year. And, uh, you know, I had to get some better study habits. I had a rough academic plebe year first time. And I said, you know what? I want to graduate from here. So I switched to being an English major. But everybody at the Naval Academy still gets a Bachelor of Science degree, General Science or Naval Science, I think it is. So even though like an English major, it's really a dual major because we had thermodynamics and electrical engineering. And it was really a yeah, Bachelor of Science and Naval Science with honors in English. So well, you know, it's, it's funny. You and I have such crossover. I have a history degree. 
but I had the naval science minor requirements, so lots of physics and calculus. And those were not, let's just say those weren't the easiest choices for me to have to make, but I had to make them. So <laughs> Then comes commissioning. And well, I mean, before that, I mean, yes, service selection. I, I know a little bit about that. I'm curious, your, your selection of choices. You were looking at these broad options early on, and you end up being a SEAL, which is a very unique, very specialized community. Yeah, there was uh, Coach Burgess, is who I give credit to. There's one of our coaches my first year at the academy. We had a great coach after that. Coach McNally is still there. But that first year that I boxed, which was my second year there, I did karate the first year, but then I went on for the boxing team. And he worked us so hard, Derek. And then I realized, uh, you know, I, I didn't know what SEALs were when I went to the academy. And when I found out what they were, uh, my first thought was, that sounds crazy. <laughs> but then talk about a formative experience. I had, I mean, this, I had good coaches in high school and I was in martial arts, but this coach really took me to, to new levels. And my first year on the boxing team there, yeah, I was lucky enough to, uh, and I, was, I was really interested in that. And I ended up uh, selecting uh, SEALs. And as far as a pilot track, it turned out that you couldn't get any waivers. I had 2010 vision when I went there. Maybe it was like just all the reading or something, but I had 2025 in one eye no waivers and I, you know, I wasn't going to be a pilot and I'd yeah. been exposed to the idea of being a SEAL. So I went that path. I could interview you on my own personal interest for an hour, just on the, you know, the next chapter, which you know was six years or so that you, you served. Anything from that era that you would share that, that you think informs, you know, to the point of our podcast, it kind of informs the rest of your story arc, the rest of your career path. There's some things that happened then um, that, you know, that imprinted you or, or made you who you are, you know, today. Absolutely. I mean, there's so many things I've forgotten. I'm so old now, I've forgotten so, a lot of them. But I think anyone who serves in the military, uh, there are definitely things that carry over to security, cybersecurity, risk management, I would say. And then sure. it's mission-oriented risk management. That's the biggest overall picture, I would say, that anyone from the Navy takes out. But definitely for the Naval Special Warfare, as a SEAL, you realize people are first, the attention to detail, how you go through things. Uh, what you think may work notionally, you know, that the real world is, you know, is very different. There's there's so many aspects. And then just the importance of training and education, but also flexibility on top of it. My being a defender, uh, interest in martial arts, and then being part of that special team. It's a, it's the honor of, you know, such an honor to have been part of that. Uh, and that came out with me and my love of technology. So what I learned there uh, my first assignment, I was at a mini sub team, so sealed delivery vehicles. It was something called the eight boat, locking out of submarines. And so that aspect of seals is not what I had. And, you know, I, I just, I didn't know what those things were. <laughs> the mini subs, it's, you know, there's, there's, uh, they, they've changed. They're, they're, they actually have some amazing technology on those, uh, the, the newer boats. But um, that was just like anything Navy, but really heavy gear, really cutting edge uh, technology. And then I did counter drug work. And so, uh, you know, working overseas, but the basic package of having uh, riverine patrol boats, for example, and, and uh, you know, having uh, special warfare squads working with host nations and just the basic tools of what naval infantry would have, of course, machine guns, explosives, all of that. But then when you layer on top of it, the ISR and the command and control and where radios come in. So all, all of that obviously was just became part of my DNA in a way that I, I've never really let go of. And I, I was drawn, I knew I wanted to go into communications, telecom type issues. And so spectrum, critical infrastructure, that's been a consistent thing for me, definitely that was uh, the Navy just infused that 
imprinted me with it. Yeah, I think there's a lot of former military DNA in the cybersecurity space. We, we see that quite often in discussions and even some of these interviews, people are like, oh, yeah, it's just where I serve. And so it comes up. I suppose it's no it's no great surprise. And, it, and we know we have listeners who are potentially coming out of or have recently come out of the service. This is a great field and industry to go into. There's so much to do. And obviously, a huge shortfall in the number of people that can go into it. So it's interesting. I'm glad you're on the show because you're, you know, where you end up is a little bit different. You know, we'll, we'll get to what you're doing, but it's the whole area around cybersecurity and, and legal. Has anybody, anybody, you know, been interviewed yet that's in that area? But it, I love it as it showcases, again, all the different kinds of places one could end up to be part of the cybersecurity or overall defense of our ecosystem and modern society. So military seems to be a good foundational building block for that sort of thing. Yeah, absolutely. And you've got a great reach into the community uh, for cybersecurity and the government side, Derek, and CSA, and and definitely for the private side and your sponsors. And I I just really want to put a pitch in. I'm I'm glad you mentioned the gap. It's grown. It has grown. Uh, I think it had been 300,000. Now I've heard numbers as high as 500,000. With the federal government, there may be as many as 30,000 positions that aren't filled. And so I would really encourage all of us, all of nation effort, to remember where veterans uh, can come in because that defender mindset, that flexibility, that understanding the people first, so the people processes and technology, and the culture of attention to detail and excellence and teamwork, that spirit, ethos, it's there with all the military folks. So I, I really hope the nation does, just continues to really go back to that well of talent and, and people who can, can fill these roles. I, I think there's so much more we can do on that front. Yeah, I'm, we're on the same page on that too. Just talk very briefly about your decision. You know, what, what is your thought process? What happens for I'm going to leave the service and I'm going to go into the legal profession to obviously go to law school for one thing. Well, how did that come about? We didn't have the op tempo at all for what we have now or what actually happened a couple of years after I left. 9-11 changed so many things. And I'd left uh, after that. And so it, it may strain, sound so strange to people. We used to say back then in training, pray for war. Uh, but the tempo wasn't there. And there were quite a few folks in uh in my era that decided to get out, the Navy made a terrible decision. They were giving, they were right-sizing or changing the size of the force, and they had an oversight. I don't know how this happened, but they, they it applied to spec war as well. And we were thinking, I don't know, whatever. So there was a chunk of money where I thought, you know, I've, I've been wondering about it. Don't get me wrong. I mean, there was, it was, you know, God's work and it was, I was blessed to do it. But I had been sort of thinking, you know, do I get out? Some people even thought, would DEA have more, you know, stuff going on? It was not the world we've been in. It's hard to imagine it now, but yeah. when I was thinking about this uh, in the end of 94 is when I, in 95 is when I outprocessed, but that was part of it. And then as far as the law, I mentioned my father, when I started thinking about this, I thought, you know, I, I think I'll take a test and see how I do on the LSAT or, or, you know, just getting ready for law school. And so I, I went into that and it's funny, I actually studied for that down, uh, I was on an assignment with two, me and two comm guys and we were in the middle of Columbia, nowhere. Uh, some Fort Apache style riverine base. And uh, when we were on watch, I had some of the study materials with me. And when we finally got back to Panama, we had bases there. They had a proctor and somebody gave, I was the only person in the room and I took the test. And I remember, you know, things were continuing to go on. And I, I came back from something else one time, uh, you know, trip down south, came back home, had all my, and I was listening to the answer machine. You remember the old answer machines? I had those tiny, you know, so I'm playing that thing. And then I hear this this lady on the phone telling me that I got into Yale Law School. I'm like, what? <laughs> and I was, you know, had my had my gear in completely, you know. I was just like, what the heck is this? Yeah. So uh, I thought about it, thought about it. So, yeah, I think I'll I think I'll give it a shot. So 
so just in, you know, I know after that is, you know, some law firm work and going to the Federal Communications Commission, anything in there that's, I'm just curious, any tech, well, FCC, uh, Federal Communications would be technology, have technology aspects. I'm wondering about the technology and cybersecurity threat in those years to whatever degree there was one. Thank you. Absolutely. Uh, great question. I clerked for a judge uh, at first, and that was a great job for a year. Then I went to Skadden Arps, uh, which is uh, you know, a law firm out of New York, that had a D.C. office. And I was working in the regulatory work and looking at deals and, and doing things related to telecom and communications, broadband, some initial things there. But the real thread came when I got to uh, the Federal Communications Commission. I was working for the general counsel directly as a special counsel. And I was given, some people may not realize, is that there is a absolutely a homeland security, law enforcement, uh, collaborate, you know, cooperation, rather, CALEA is what it's called. And there is actually a role for uh, security of the networks that goes, it requires clearances. So I had a top secret clearance at the FCC. There was a skiff there and I just had an, an extra assignment. So there was absolutely a cybersecurity thread uh, that started that early. I took to it because then I also remembered, wow, there were Obviously, you can't be in the military without having to use, you know, some of the codes and things with security, even back then with radios. And that was how that started. The defense commissioner was the chairman. So there's somebody actually designated in case things happen, continuity of, of government. So there were functions that I served even while I was a uh, government uh, attorney, policy person within the Federal Communications Commission. So that was the, the start of it. And then and more happened on the Hill as well when I got to the working for uh, Senate Commerce Committee, we covered some of the initial things that were going on with spyware and security aspects as well. I worked for the late, great uh, Senator Ted Stevens uh, for two years in the 109th Congress. So there was there were also some policy and, and legal aspects on cybersecurity. So that, that thread was definitely there. Well, that's great. I, I think, yeah, just I think keep kind of going leading up to where you are today. You know, you got a couple of interesting other stops. Google, uh, then you head up the uh, D.C. Chamber of Commerce as the CEO of the D.C. Chamber of Commerce. So you, you've really done some interesting things. Some of those, I'm assuming, there's not a heavy technology focus at the time other than your own interests. Maybe the, the least focused on those for technology would have been the D.C. Chamber, but there are even some things there. Uh, but, but going back after uh, when I was on the Hill, leaving, uh, working uh, for the Senate Commerce Committee, I went to a startup. That was a smart grid company. It's called, you know, smart grid at the time was kind of a new new concept, a new term. But uh, really what it was doing is trying to put more communication technology within the last mile of electricity, if you will. So after, you know, substations through the local network, smart transformers, broadband over power line, or how do you understand what's going on uh, beyond the substation? So I was at a company that worked on that and I got recruited to Google you can believe it, based on some of what I knew about that world. And uh, when I was at Google, the technology side was, how do you take, there was a project called Power Meter, which was really a precursor for the Nest acquisition that happened later. And uh, so I worked on some energy information issues. Uh, there was a fun thing I got to do with Smart Grid was part of the stimulus package back in 2009, I think it was, ARRA is the acronym for the Recovery Act back then, $4.5 billion dollars went towards uh, smart grid uh, technologies. And for me, my another cybersecurity pinch myself moment where I can't believe this happened, but it actually did. I was um, helping out, was uh, you know helping to get that language you know in. Google's not, wasn't considered an energy company 
but that provision, 4.5 billion, I saw an opportunity and thought to myself, and I asked Ben Surf, yeah, that Ben Surf, because he, he works there. <laughs> and, and long story short, we proposed and, and championed and got a coalition of people in the industry to propose open protocols for $4.5 billion in smart electric grid money. Some people tried to oppose it, saying that it would not be secure. And we were saying to the contrary, you know, security through security approaches, you know, that done right, open protocols, you know, in the right context can not only spur innovation, but you can have some benefits for cybersecurity. So I remember covering that issue uh, early on. That was my, my first year, I think, at Google. And then later, the big thing, and the reason I'm here now in a, a context of cybersecurity in, in, in many ways, is that when the attacks out of China happened and Google was caught up in that, I was able to cover that issue uh, for the company, including taking the uh, CEO over to the White House to talk about Google's approach to cloud security. So there were definite technical aspects in working with engineers and, and talking about Google's approach to security as a cloud company, uh, cloud computing company and all that goes with it. Uh, that was, and that really spoke to a lot of things in my military past. And I thought, wow, this cybersecurity thing is cool. So that was a real light bulb there, was that moment. Yeah, I, I'm so glad you shared it in that chronological order because even myself, I had this mistaken kind of setup there that there was a gap. But the truth is, the legal path you've taken is all this stuff that, you know, and I think there's a lot of people who might be listening to this that don't think about, oh, yeah, cybersecurity has these different spheres. And there are people obviously working hands on, you know, in cybersecurity. But you've been exposed to a, a very long story arc in this policy and illegality and inter between countries, uh, there's a whole bunch of other stuff, right, that many, many people are wrestling with and working on right now. And uh, and you're still teaching at the university, at the Defense, at the defense uh, University, and we'll get to that. This area, there's a lot of work to be done, right? It's unprecedented territory in many ways. It, it really is. And it's I'm, I'm, that's a nice way to put it, too. Thank you for saying the arc and the connectivity. Sometimes I'll wonder, I'll go, well, you know, I thought I was going to be a telecom lawyer for the longest time. or And, and it's funny, like we spend a lot of our lives in plan B, but, but not really. There is an arc. I've been fortunate, but I think if somebody looks at my, you know, just the names of where I've been, they don't always see the connectivity. Yeah. And for me, the, one of the newest things, even at the, at the D.C. Chamber, being a voice for business in, in, in a very important city in the world, the cognitive side now of security has really come crashing into uh, the forefront in ways that was never there before. By that, I mean the 2016 elections and you know, Russia's involvement with that reminded us that you can not only hack networks, you can hack cultures and you can hack minds. And so when I was in the role of running the DC Chamber of Commerce, I couldn't turn off my security-minded national security aspects and going, wow, this is an interesting way to look at the city and you look at what makes it work in the politics and the fault lines. And now that I've been at, at the uh, National Defense University and we're thinking about peer competitors like China and Russia and what are the threats for not just the cybersecurity side of things, but also for cognitive attacks against us. And that's something that I would have never thought my perspective on how cities work and how groups of populations and politics work, but that's that's there now too. I hope this is uh, is illuminating to some of our listeners to just think about the cogs in the machine. We all talk about we're working on this this problem space. It's a big machine with a bunch of gears, right? And not everybody always, of course, our listeners are, you know, they're the best, but not everybody thinks about the other gears. They only really, you know, maybe they only think about their own gear. And this whole legal policy 
area is is gears in the machinery there that that people don't necessarily give some thought to. Like, why can't we just do X? Now, what are the implications of some of the things we choose to do? And they're they're big implications, right? And, and sometimes too, it goes the other direction. And it's it's interesting. One thing I've really enjoyed being part of the faculty at the National Defense University is how do you get to the strategic level of cyber, really? And uh, I think over time, you know, because I love technology, I'm a technologist at heart, told a little bit about my background, but it's also hard to get stuck. And this was something I was lucky to see working for a senator, just really amazing to see someone like an American hero, Ted Stevens, senator from Alaska, uh, you know, God rest his soul. But when he asked for something, it's a one pager and really big font, (laughs) and it might cover two pages. And, that, and the country is run off of these decisions where he is getting so many things come across his desk and these leaders at that galactic level. And so what I'm saying is there are folks who will not be into the technical details, but they will understand the strategic level, what it means. And I would encourage uh, anyone who's listening to this and, and folks who follow the excellent uh, material that CSA puts out to remember that, you know, there's something for everyone to learn at every point in their career. And for folks who may feel, okay, I'm looking at this particular aspect of ICS or SCADA, and, you know, there's this threat and the Internet of Things and looking up every now and again and going, okay, how would the CEO of the company view this issue? How could I best get across the opportunity and the risk for it? And that, that's the earlier someone can do that in their career, easier said than done, you know, the better. And the same for leaders who are coming from the other angle. They may not think that they're technical. But then realizing that's part of being a leader is I don't care if your degrees in basket weaving, if you're at that level of importance in a, in a certain endeavor or enterprise, you have to understand how to use your technical teams and set up the environment as a leader that that translation happens and that you pull the essence out. That is so important you know, for, for teams to be able to do, don't you think? Well, I do. And I think you just hit on, you know, I'm always looking for what I call nuggets you know, walk away value. And you touched on something big, which is look up from your area and look around. And this idea of how would, if I put the hat on of, you said the CEO, I think, but, you know, it could be someone in the leadership stack that you need to influence. It could be the CEO, it could be a board member, it could be the board, uh, it could be a boss, it could be multidisciplinary teams, you know, in a presentation, but put their hat on or try to and say, what do I need? How do I need to speak in their language? You didn't say this, but I think you were implying it. And this has come up before. There's a lot of people like, oh, why can't I just get this across and get this other party to get this? Like, well, you may be speaking in your own language and from your own disposition and not spend a little time trying to put their hat on and go, maybe maybe they think about this differently. You know, how do they talk about risk? So I love that you said that you look up and look outside your, you know, what you're working on and, and think in terms of uh, what the, how they may be looking at this. Right. And I think that, that comes from the military, too, as well. Uh, I'll never forget when we were in SEAL training, one of the instructors, uh, we were doing an old school frogman style where you had the slate and your team is doing like a swim in, like you rolled off a boat in your beach survey and figuring out the soundings and where would the Marines land, what type of sand is it? And then drawing up by hand the chart. And I'll never forget this one instructor saying, you're going to have to brief that admiral. And this is the fleet we're talking about. And it was kind of cool because it said, you know, here we are, this very specialized team, and yet you're part of a bigger picture. So that is absolutely a military concept, and uh, but it applies in other places. So yes, you're right. That nugget of looking up and seeing where you fit in, and the whole nation has to do that, for sure. 
Yeah, behooves us all. So you end up at a defense uh, college. So talk about the getting there and, and what you're doing there. Uh, so the National Defense University is on Fort McNair within Washington, D.C. And the base itself has been there since, I think, 1787. It's, it goes way back and it has a history. Uh, Lincoln himself, I think, uh, did some spotting across the river during the Civil War at a gun emplacements on the other side of, of, the, of the river there. I think the uh, I think Lincoln's uh, assassin actually, anyway, there's just, it's crazy what the history is at the base. But most people have heard of the National War College, and that is part of the National Defense University. So the most famous college within NDU is the National War College. I mean, people like Colin Powell have gone through there. Leaders from you know from all over the military, but also our, our partner nations uh, send people to NDU. The Eisenhower School is another college that's well known and has most students. There's about 300 students there, and they cover. And there's a concept backing up NDU. If you think of the four levers of national power or DIME, there's a construct, and that stands for diplomacy, information, the military element of, of national power, and the economic lever of national power. So DIME. We cover the information part. That's my college. We started out as the Information Resources Management College. Not a very exciting name, but it goes back to the time of Grace Hopper and when CIOs were starting to evolve, when government and CIOs were becoming more important. Not very big, not large. We were a smaller college, uh, definitely a smaller sister college and, and not as recent uh, as the storied War College, but we're there. And then a couple of years ago, Congress in one of the National Defense Authorization Acts renamed us the College of Information and Cyberspace. And they really had foresight to put the information part in there and cyberspace because, as I mentioned, uh, what's going on with active measures and, and things in the cognitive domain is absolutely right there. Uh, definitely Cambridge Analytica, the attacks on our election system through social media, that's in parcel now. We've got some great people come on board for that aspect. But really, it goes back, you know, the classic core part of it is uh, how do you protect networks and and uh, make sure that we can not only defend in cyberspace, but also how do you apply the information element of national power? So, how, you know, how would cyber warfare uh, be conducted consistent with international law? My part of it is I, I focus on the legal aspects. I've also taught some courses on the critical infrastructure aspects, given my background on what the telecom uh, you know, system is all about. Definitely on civil military fusion, like I, I understand Okay, so 85% of the critical infrastructure is going to be controlled by the private sector. So those are the types of things we talk about within my college, and it's it's great. We have you know these rising leaders, usually at the level of uh, colonel or someone who's about to be an SES if it's civilians. And we do have people from all over the world, our partner nations. Definitely, the Five Eyes are represented there. That's great. So teaching students, uh, that's a really rewarding. And one other thing we also get to do is I engage. I got to testify in front of Congress uh, last year. That was exciting. I've been involved with some efforts on cybersecurity related to drones. There's a group within the government that's looking at that issue, giving classified briefings on invitation. Uh, one I was really excited about, but of course couldn't tell you what happened. But that it's come out of my really going deep on some aspects of uh, drones in the scholarship side. So, you know, we're encouraged to publish papers and engage with AFSI as well, which is, you know, like CSA, you know, there are other organizations and they go back to World War II and you guys are going to have a storied uh, future as well, I know. But uh, that engagement side, in addition to teaching, is something that we also do as, as faculty. So what I, I love to do, we've kind of reached where you are now. Let's go back and give, uh, if you're sitting across the table from 
earlier stages, any advice that you would give, you know, there's this, these career paths in cyber, yours is a unique one. And again, I just, I love that we've been able to feature something quite different. What are things that you, you know, that you would tell a younger you to prepare to, to latch onto any facet of cybersecurity? It doesn't have to be the one you happen to, to go down, but it could be any advice that pops to mind. And people are looking, we, we have people reach out to us all the time. They're like, I'm at this early stage of my career or leaving the military or looking for a major change. And how do I break in? Is this common, common question? How do I get into the cybersecurity? Of course, we know that's such a broad-based question and such a big ball of wax. But each of you guests on the show have your perspectives. I'm like, okay, well, going back here, here's some things I would have learned. Uh, knowing what I know about the future or believe about the future, here's some things I would learn today. Right. That's a great question, Derek. Thank you. Uh, I think one of the biggest things is to really, as a, to a younger me, version of me, I would go back to that thing that everybody that's young hears, where people say, it used to be in our age, it's network. I would go back and tell myself, no, what, what really people are saying is, you will have champions, you will have mentors in your life. I would say, find your champions, those people who you just look up to, respect, and who take an interest in you, and never let go. Because now, I can't say, you know, as we get older, I've done this so many times where I tell someone, you're doing great. You know, I like your spirit. I like your approach to it. And I will tell this young person, I'll help you anytime. And then you don't hear from them for two years. And then I realized I've done that. <laughs> so I would say recognizing that point that uh, all paths, I mean, we have to, you know, it has to be something that we are definitely doing ourselves and getting into it. But I would look at it for telling my, my earlier self, every path to where you want to go, younger Harry is there's a people path there as well. Really consider to yourself, who are the folks, the people in concrete terms who you admire and who have been there and really be active about learning from them and asking for them their help. That's that's one main thing. Yeah, I was just gonna say, I'll, I'll just add to that, that I often ask that question. I hadn't gotten to it yet. Um, it just comes up organically. It's very common for people who have reached a certain level, you know, and I suppose it's it's come for anybody who's kind of progressing to reference that kind of mentor-mentee element in their own story. And I think people take for you know take that for granted um, that they could reach out to someone like you. They could reach out and say, "Hey, you know, can I get a cup of coffee with you or something?" Like and I I do that. Many people reach out to me as an entrepreneur for many many years in that way. Early stage entrepreneurs like, "Yeah, if I can work it in, I will." They're surprised, and I think that's we need to encourage them. Like, reach out. Don't don't be afraid to ask. You might get a no, or you might not get a response, but. More than you might guess, you will. People, I, and I find in the cybersecurity industry, people are very giving with their their time and advice and, and sharing the wisdom they've gathered along the way. Absolutely. Uh, one other thing I would say is really figuring out what you want to do in a different way, actively considering it and figuring out what you want to say no to. Because sometimes people who, and it, sometimes many options can be, you know, in, in some ways can slow you down. It's funny as that sounds. <laughs> so that whole thing about, and there's a new concept I had not heard of until kind of recently. It's a Japanese concept, uh, literally translated, it means a reason for being busy. So in other words, your life's purpose, but it's really a reason for being busy. And God bless my dad, Army, he's 91 years old. Uh, my mom is 80 and he, you know he's still on that farm out in, in Lothian and it was such a blessing for it. But he he get, today he got up and he got you know got on a, got on a tractor you know was out in the fields 91 and so he has a reason for being busy I was telling him about this concept it's, it's a, the Japanese term is ikigai i k i g a i look it up you know it's amazing what you can do with Google nowadays right search it but the concept really means 
four intersecting concepts that can help guide you to what your life's path is. The first one is it definitely has to do with skill. What are you good at? The next one is in your practice. And, you know, that's one thing, skill. The other one, very important. What can you be paid for? <laughs> How can you get money for, you know, for something? But that's yeah. only one of the circles. The other circle is what does the world need? Different, right? And then the final one, of course, is what do you love doing? What's your passion? And it's an interesting way to dial that lens in. So if you consider what's your skill, and I imagine a black belt for that one, what can you get paid for? Maybe put a dollar sign there. <laughs> what does the world need? Like literally, what is the spirit of the times? IoT protection. We're going to automated attacks and automated defense. Sticks and taxi. What's next for automated cyber threat intelligence? Uh, the Cyberspace Solarium Commission recommended having a joint collaborative environment for what's next, right? Beyond sticks and taxi. That's what the world needs. AI is coming. So that's something. But then what do you love? I, I didn't mention, I went out and I got my CEH. You know, I let it last after three years, but I, I, I spent some time, uh, you know, went through that course, took another aspect of it where I broke into two machines, you know, virtual machine, you know, just did that. But my passion is I love technology. I love applying it, but I also love imagining what the future, you know, is going to be. So I would say my advice is to really get those tools out and hone, like really think through if, you know, take the big shot, what would you like to do? And this is so much fun. I'm having fun. Uh, you know, talking about these because I know where it's going to go. Hopefully it helps somebody. But one thing I haven't mentioned yet, Derek, is passion of mine right now that does go to cyber, it goes to IoT. So I would like to use, and here I got a prop. I'm, I'll mean, i be right back. <laughs> so if you're just looking to see this, but we are capturing video as well for beyond the podcast. Yeah, so this is, yeah, this is my parent Bebop, about $450 drone. It's got some marks. But anyway, this, this little drone, I about three years ago, while at the National Defense University, I had this, this thought, like, why don't we use networks or, or have small drones pre-positioned inside of high occupancy buildings? That in the case, God forbid, of an active shooting, what if that smart building technology, an indoor version of ShotSpotter, you know, that system that triangulates where gunshots are coming from, usually outside, what if you could have the building itself recognize shots have been fired and have several small drones fly from where they've been positioned ahead of time and provide visual access, converge on the shooter, give the site picture to the arriving first responders, as well as those who may be private security on site already. And beyond that, what if in addition to having that situational awareness, what if you were able to use non-lethal technology, pepper ball, pepper spray to neutralize the shooter? And if you put AI, machine learning, into that category. So you're not only just remotely flying, you could see something going into position, having a teleoperated emergency response. That, that's great. But the dream would be in what I thought three years ago. And so that passion, it's got me into a very specific one aspect of the internet of things that are out there. I, I mentioned what I know about the electricity grid and you know things that go with that and safety for, uh, for telecommunications network and 5G, I could talk to you for a whole nother session. Maybe you'll ask me back for, you know, for Huawei and what's going on with that aspect. But for me, that passion about <laughs> but that, but where drones and small drones are. I talked about this when I testified in front of the Senate last June, you know, that we 85% of our drones are by a Chinese company, DJI, and it's unacceptable. I, I insisted on 
getting a, at least the French developed, designed, operated, you know, the cloud stuff goes back to France, NATO ally country, but they are a distant second in the world. And we're still trying to get our small drone industrial base. We, we have big drones. We, we know that, uh, you know, pretty, during the war on terror, we've seen where those have gone. But the smaller versions, it's so important for us, Derek, to get into this and, and fight back, to build back our capacity on microelectronics. Uh, we have a lot of things on the front end, good patents, good development. Intel's done great things. We're going over into ARM architecture with Apple leading the way. But drones, Skydio, great company. Teal, great company. Their efforts, Ellen Lord at the Pentagon has asked the president, you know, said, President Trump said, hey, we, we need small drones. Uh, I, I know that whoever, you know, ends up being president is going to hopefully keep this going. But I just wanted to share that because what I learned about security for these drones, because you get, okay, fine. You want to stop active shooters with a friendly swarm that comes up. Well, what could go wrong? There's the stuff that CSA covers, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, Assured yeah, system. Well, I mean, you couldn't have, you're, you're, you're a dream guest because you're right. We foster discussion, right? We are trying to get everybody to talk across aisles and across departments and across industry. And so what you're talking about there has a lot of touch points, right? It's It's got uh, clearly legal and policy stuff deeply embedded in there, but it's got technology and it's got a supply chain and you know, there's a lot of stuff there, right? Um, and so, yeah, I think we see CSA as a, you know, a not-for-profit team builder, you know, this is all team, right? We had to get more people talking with each other and recognizing the other pieces that the other people need to bring to the table. And uh, so, yeah, great topic to start to wind up our, our session on. And I have written notes. You'll be back. <laughs> we got too many threads that we need to we need to pull. Aren't necessarily your story, but some of the things you've got your teeth sunk into these days um, that all by themselves are, are incredibly, uh, you know, uh, apropos. Timing is right, and they're interesting. So we'll we'll definitely want to get unpack some of those later. I think with what we have left, you've kind of already done it. So maybe you'll gloss over it and say, you know, here's two other areas: visionary, looking ahead. So some people say, okay, if I want to be highly prized ten years from now. I mean, we could all do that now, right? We could look and say, oh, well, if I'd been studying this 15 years ago and 10 years ago today, I'd be one of the eight people that only know how to really talk about this. Well, right. that's all about a little bit of forecasting, right? a little bit of future predicting. What do you see ahead? Drones is clearly in this category. You know, what do you see ahead and say, oh, you know what? Start, start educating. You may be doing job A, but start reading up on and studying topic X through, you know, Z. Uh, yeah. Because those are going to be areas where people, you know, experts and people who know what they're talking about are going to be really in demand it, you know, as it pertains to cybersecurity. Absolutely. This won't be much of a surprise because people really should embrace what automation is, is going to mean going forward. So Wayne Gretzky would say, right, skate to where the fuck is going to be, not where it is right now. And artificial intelligence, so one, I'm, I'm, I'm just fascinated with what's already happened in that space. DOD has the Jake to join Artificial Intelligence uh, Center. Uh, you know, they we've been able at NDU to help support some of those efforts, uh, you know, earlier on. I've seen that them developing. But I would say for cybersecurity uh, practitioners, consider not the science fiction stuff. And, and definitely read. If you want a good podcast, Lex Friedman, F-R-I-D-M-A-N. He's someone I listen to, you know, for podcasts and get a lot of information in. But if you look for MIT and it's the Artificial Intelligence Podcast with Lex Friedman, he's great. He also has it on YouTube so you can listen. But there's uh, there's a concept, DARPA. Go to DARPA. They just had their 60th anniversary not too long ago, and they are looking at what's next, the third generation or next wave AI, if you will. And so for cybersecurity systems, how can you start to put something more than just, and so it's, it's powerful what's happened with deep learning and pattern recognition. 
but we have to get into kind of a common sense AI architecture. So what I really think is exciting, I made a reference to how you have cyber threat information sharing and some of the protocols that allow, you know, DHS, it's great that they have CISA now on the policy side, but saying, hey, I can put the server here and I can have indicators of compromise. And then now they've gone to different architectures that actually go beyond that. And it happens at machine speed and you can share as much as you want to. Well, what's after that? What happens with cloud plus automation and then really putting in the types of working with teams where you can start to say, you know, there are some things that I, I really want to do more of the grunt work at digital speed within the architectures of the system themselves and at that scale. That's exciting. And so definitely keep an eye on what happens after the litigation dust settles on Jedi, for example, between Amazon and Microsoft, you know, going after that big cloud contract, the security aspects of what that will allow with automation, with machine learning is really important. So I would say definitely start getting smart within your specific area. And again, you don't want to be, you have to understand the limitations. They're they're huge. You want to go too far over the horizon, but really understanding uh, and that's a big one, understanding what is pixie dust. Somebody says Terminator's coming. I can say I, I, I don't believe that anymore because I just read a book by a Gary Marcus as a professor out of NYU who wrote a book called Rebooting AI, who talks about how you get the common sense uh, types of structures uh, for AI, which is very hard. Another lady, Melanie Mitchell, uh, I think she's from Portland. She's got a, a book called Artificial Intelligence, A Guide for Thinking Humans. And, uh, you know, both of those books, amazing on what the limits of AI are. So, again, oh, and white papers. I would say definitely if you want to see where this, these are going, publish. Remember that you can, you can write, but also you should be pulling down, uh, use Google Scholar. I teach students that, but any practitioner should be going. And you don't need to get into, you know, the details of it. But what you should do is every now and then, what is it, ARXIV, you know, that search, ARXIV has a lot of great white papers on technical subjects. There's a lot of good places to go. Uh, the Military Cyber Professionals Association, MCPA, you've got uh, CSEG, you know, you'll have probably, you know, your, there's resources that you have. Get out there, see what's being published, see what people are saying, and uh, publish yourself. But I would say automation and AI, you have to know uh, where that's going as professional. So that would be, that'd be my answer. No, I think that's spot on. Great advice. Unpack a whole bunch of different even sub areas within those categories that you highlighted. Uh, lots to do for the foreseeable future. Anybody's career lifetime. Those areas, those are going to be exciting areas. Well, we could go on for hours, but unfortunately, we better not. We run out of time. But Harry Wingo, this has been great. Uh, if you've been listening uh, midway, I have had Harry Wingo, faculty member for cybersecurity studies at the National Defense University, former Navy SEAL, former uh, lots of things, attorney, uh, focused on the legal and policy sides of cybersecurity, cutting edge things today uh, that we all need to be thinking about, no matter what our position in the cybersecurity uh, industry might be. You know, this is a this, these are important gears in the uh, in the machinery. So, again, thank you so much, Harry, for being on the show. You're welcome, Derek. And let me say this. Anyone who wants to get in touch. If they're going through CSA, my door is open. Now, I'm always here to help. And uh, thanks for what you're doing for the community, Derek. Uh, God bless and, you know, fair winds and fallen seas. We'll be, I'll see you before then, though. <laughs> Take Sounds care. good. Drawing times, but hopefully we will see each other soon uh, in, in person someday. Yeah, well, thanks, Harry. Yeah, take care. Uh, be well. All right. Be well. Thank you.